Hello, this is Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada, and this is a new podcast series called Discussions in the History of Psychology. What I hope to be able to do is bring together groups of academics who are experts on a particular topic in the history of psychology and hold a discussion of about 45 minutes in duration. Welcome to the very first episode. Starting in the 1950s and blossoming in the 1960s and 70s was a movement known as humanistic psychology, calling itself the third force in psychology, seeking to displace both behaviorism and psychoanalysis. Humanistic psychology sought to put plain conscious experience once again at the discipline's core and emphasize human freedom, human potential, and human happiness. With the conservative social turn of the 1980s, humanistic psychology began to recede into a movement on the margins of psychology, but for a time it represented a popular reaction to what were viewed as the darker deterministic schools that had dominated the field in the first half of the 20th century, particularly behaviorism and psychoanalysis. Here to discuss humanistic psychology with me today are Father Vincent Hevern, uh, who goes by Vinny, of Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, Dr. Robert Kugelman, who goes by Bob, of the University of Dallas uh, in Texas, and finally Dr. Hendrickus Stam, who goes by Hank, um, and he is at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. All right, so if I could start with you, Vinny, I wonder if you could talk about sort of what issues were prominent in, in 1940s America and in 1940s psychology um, that sort of called for the kind of reaction that humanistic psychology represented. I would suspect that the, the f- fundamental issue um, facing at least the second half of the 1940s is the fact that it comes after the Second World War. And there's a whole set of implications from that. Um, one set of implications is that you had a whole nation, whole many nations, uh, the United States, Canada, so who had lots of people who saw some really awful things, came back, didn't talk about it, and as we now know, actually there there were there were issues that resulted in for that particular cultural quiet or silence. Um, at the same time, uh, the war had artificially, in a sense, ended the depression. So when you have the Second World War over, you begin almost immediately thereafter having economic difficulties all over uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, et cetera. And so the question was going to be, I mean, what do we do? And one of the things was is that we're going to start spending money. We're going to spend it in a whole variety of ways, helping Europe to kind of reach, you know, get itself back together, but also the formation of a consumer society and very intensive efforts to use media communications to tell people they have needs, they need to be buying products or so. It's coming at the same time. You have a change socially in the United States in a whole variety of ways. You certainly have the beginnings of the whole movement to the suburbs, which really picks up steam during the 1950s. You certainly have the issue of gender, uh, changes of gender roles. You had women fulfilling all sorts of... uh, traditional male positions during the war, and then the war is over and they're asked to go back, and that doesn't quite work as well. And that's going to play itself out over the next 20 years. Politically, though, um, the world started to divide into the democratic camp and the communist camp. And so you, and, and it's a nuclear world. It's a world in which there's a threat for the first time of real annihilation, and so you have a, a sense of uh, 
you know, maybe a peace was achieved, but uh, if, if, if that other side begins to get control, what you will see is just another form of totalitarianism spreading around the world, and the United States, of course, with the Marshall Plan, wanted to kind of prevent that, but it also seeped culturally into the United States and to other countries in terms of a form of anti-communism, a kind of a form of suspicion of those who didn't act in the same sort of way. Uh, yet, you also had the notion that it was democracy that needed to uh, advance itself. Democracy means freedom, and in the exercise of freedom, what sort of person should we be? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think maybe for psychologists, one of the major questions after the Second World War was what is this self that needs to be functioning in all of these different new contexts? And so I think those are some, at least some of the issues that were going on at that period. Right, right. So, so Bob, so if you can sketch out what the parameters of this, this reaction to all those issues uh, that he was just talking about was, what is this thing called humanistic psychology? Well, you know, uh, some of it even predates um, World War II. I mean, Gordon Allport gave a presidential address to the APA, I guess 1939, published in 1940, which was really brilliant. And we talked about the – I think he delivered it even right on the, the week that the war started. It I may think. have been and a few days after. A few days, exactly, yeah. Uh, and, he, and so he said it in that kind of context. And, um, but one of the things he says towards the end of that article is that psychology is becoming – uh, nomothetic, it's relying on statistics. And while he didn't disparage any of that, he thought there's, there's the place for the, or the ideographic uh, for the uh, case kind of uh, presentation and so on. He says that um, psychologists have to remember that uh, human beings are, are beings that speak, and so we shouldn't rule out speech in the context of, uh, of research. So you have already, even before the war, a concern for a, a narrowing of the field of psychology that someone like Allport was uh, warning against. And I think after the war, um, you have, uh, in the late 1940s, well, I guess even earlier than that, Carl Rogers' research, because he opened up uh, research, uh, psychotherapy to um, research. He was tape recording sessions and transcribing them and so demystifying what was going on in uh, psychotherapy. He was developing non-directive therapy, which means that the therapist is not simply an authority figure who tells people what to do, but that people are encouraged to discover it for themselves. So on, on those two levels and in a variety of other ways, there were beginning to be reactions against what were perceived as the dominant um, trends in psychology, namely the behaviorist and the psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And something was being offered that, that spoke to uh, human self-determination. Yeah, and, and how does that, how does it, as, as it begins to pick up steam in the 50s and the 60s, what, what are the outlines of, of what comes to be called humanistic psychology? What? Well, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with... Um, you know, it's it's broad. It's broad based. It it, in, it includes there's an interdisciplinary aspect to it, including people like Paul Tillich, uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, and others. Uh, there are Europeans who come and come over, like uh, Eric Fromm. It, it draws on people like Harry Stack Sullivan, interpersonal theory of psycho of psychiatry. 
uh, a variety of uh, things start to come together that emphasize things that ha- were seen as having been neglected. And, and what are those? For people who don't know, the, know those names, what, yeah. are the, what brings them together? What are the ideas that, that, that I, they... I, a number of them. The, a central one would have to do with the whole notion of encounter. Um, Martin Buber's notion of the I-thou as essential to whatever's going on in psychology. The whole question of the search for meaning, the search for significance of life, uh, especially you know, in light of some of the things that Vinnie was saying about the developing consumer society was an element of that, but also the fact of the uh, Iron Curtain and the uh, nuclear weapons, the notion that um, life, the meaning of life seemed to be imperiled and that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And then one final thing is, is that uh, the post-war period saw the uh, enormous growth in clinical psychology, especially with NIMH and the um, GI Bill. It provided the opportunity for people to um, study those areas, and I think that was a big impetus. Because I don't think humanistic psychology would have developed purely in an academic psychological context. It, it, psychotherapy or clinical psychology is really where it made its impact. So there's a, this expansion of therapy, a normalization of therapy. It's not something that's just for the psychotic, but something that is for people who, right. have, who want to I don't know, improve their lives, expand their lives. Yeah, it draws on notions that psychotherapy is not only about adjustment, but it's about enrichment. It's about the um, fi- individuation, to use Jung's term, You know, the, the search for um, the higher meanings of life rather than simply being able to survive mm-hmm. in the social world. Yeah. Um, Hank, it seems to me that there's an awful lot of there, there are certain kinds of connections between American humanism and, and the European philosophical trends from this period and, and from earlier phenomenology, existentialism can, can you talk about those a bit? Well, I'm tempted to say right off the bat that uh, North Americans paid lip service to the European traditions of phenomenology and existentialism uh, but that when it came to doing the serious work, they, in fact, uh, adjusted and molded and uh, co-opted those ideas in a way that made them look very different than their origins. And the reason for that is that uh, phenomenological uh, philosophy in Europe was, in fact, a, a movement within philosophy and a movement that began as an anti-psychology movement. That is, it was an attempt to remove from philosophy departments those experimental psychologists who were philosophers originally, uh, who were threatening to take over philosophy departments in Germany especially. And so phenomenological philosophy as a rigorous and serious attempt to understand the contents and the structure of consciousness was an attempt to actually redo, uh, as it were, philosophy from the ground up in such a way that it would exclude experimental psychology. So the the kind of phenomenology that existed in, for example, German philosophy departments uh, was very different from the kind of phenomenology that was later adopted uh, when it was exported to North America. Uh, and, and I think there are many reasons for that, but uh, you know they have to do with the context, as, as Vinnie pointed out, of a post-war uh, nation and a discipline of psychology that was probably uh, searching for particularly positive models of human endeavor uh, and stuck in the sterility of behaviorism, which you know was difficult to apply willy-nilly to uh, clinical context and so on. 
Um, but phenomenology as, as, uh, as a philosophical movement did lend itself to these kinds of notions that the humanists were proposing in uh, psychology in North America, people like Maslow and Rogers. Um, <clears throat> but in addition, the, the French picked up on the phenomenology particularly after Heidegger, after Martin Heidegger's uh, major work, Being in Time, uh, the, the French, uh, in, in a sense, popularized this by develop, developing the existential implications of phenomenology. That is, the notion that we are essentially thrown into the world as beings who have to make ourselves. And, and this concept in the work of Sartre then uh, took on uh, various kinds of uh, directions, uh, and some of that was picked up by North American humanist psychologists as mm -hmm. well. So we have a kind of continental philosophy light on on this it, side yes, of the Atlantic. You could say that. Yeah. But what happened? And, and now, many of those philosophers, because of the war and and, and various other things, because of the, the the problems in Europe at the time, actually end up moving to the United States themselves to continue their philosophical careers and encounter this shadow of themselves, this odd reflection of themselves. How did they, who were some of those people and, and how did they deal with that? Uh, well, uh, we see, for example, in uh, uh, Duquesne University, uh, people like von Kamm, Adrian von Kamm, but also uh, there is a, a movement of the uh, more critical neo-Marxist uh, group uh, in Frankfurt who uh, set up in the new school in New York, mm -hmm. uh, and they develop uh, variations on what they were working on in pre-war Europe, and they are sensitive to the context. They have to, in a sense, try to make their work fit the, the American context, and in some ways they adjust and mold and change their ways of thinking. Uh, so that what you what what gets mixed up with humanism is also a kind of uh, sense of revolution, rebellion, resistance to uh, consumer society, or what gets called mass society by the critical neo Frankfurt school people, the people who are, you know originally come out of the Frankfurt school, like Herbert Marcuse. Uh, which also gets mixed up with psychoanalytic ideas. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you see uh, Brown, for example, Norman O. Brown, who uh, begin to develop theories about the way in which repression works in consumer society such that we are uh, essentially docile participants in our own uh, repression and suppression. And we need to liberate ourselves from these kinds of uh, worlds. And the way to do this is to be uh, essentially open sexually and to, uh, to uh, revolt against the, the oppressive features of the world we find ourselves in. So, so all of these things mix in then with the, the kind of countercultural movement of the 1960s. Uh, so would any of the three of you, would you characterize humanism, humanistic psychology as being anti-science or as being alternative science? What was the, what was the perceived relationship to scientific well, psychology? One, one has to remember, Maslow started as an animal behaviorist, I mean, and, and there was always a sense there. But even beyond that, though, one thing that's fascinating is, is uh, Carl Rogers you know, in, in the mid-50s said, listen, these are the criteria by which if you have an encounter with a, between a client and a, a therapist, a counselor of some type, 
inevitably progress is going to be made. And he said, I'm going to try to prove it, and I challenge you to disprove me. And in, in, a, in a fascinating way, he actually was um, one of those who was very open to seeing um, uh, experimental demonstration or data, uh, quantitative data derived that would support his notion of unconditional positive regard and, and, and empathy, accurate empathy, etc. And indeed, in some ways, might well be considered to have been the, uh, uh, at some level, the, the, the opening towards you know, the, the notion of studying common factors in psychotherapy. And there's been an enormous literature that developed beginning in the 50s, but then expanding in the 60s and 70s, in which he was at least not fully supported. Um, his notion that, uh, that the therapist can be absolutely and completely neutral I don't think there's an awful lot of mm-hmm. empirical support for that, but an awful lot of the common factors about accurate listening and empathy and, and, and positive regard for clients has been pretty good data about that, and it was because of, he said we need the data. Okay. Anyway. Not everyone after him said that, however. Well, no, so we have one thread that's uh, pro-science, or at least for yeah. kind of alternative sort of science. What about the other two of you? Do you think of it as a... A rejection, a rejection of conventional science, or a reformulation of it, or both. I mean, there, there are, there are strands. I mean, that's what's interesting about the humanistic psychology movement is that, you know, while it had these uh, big names, it was also a very uh, democratic movement, and so you, you could find your strand that that uh, appealed to you. So th- there was some elements in it, or some aspects of it, especially as it got caught up with the uh, the counterculture. Because to quantify anything meant that you were you were reducing human beings to numbers. Mm-hmm. So you know it was the uh, old uh, students uh, today won't remember the IBM cards. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Oh, yeah. And you know that we were all IBM cards and and so on. So there there was that element of it that was uh, rejective of uh, any kind of, of science. But and there was another strand partly drawn on you know drawing on the uh, continental thinkers who were trying to uh, develop alternative ways of being scientific within the uh, humanist- humanistic psychology movement. I think of especially the Duquesne School, but also Clark Moustakis developed you know, a form of qualitative research. I think he called it heuristic research. There are, there are any number of variations on it, but the idea was that um, you could develop a way of being scientific. This is, uh, you know, Amadeo Giorgi has uh, championed this for so long. Uh, you could be scientific without being reductionistic and take into consideration not only the lower reaches of human possibility but the the upper reaches of it as well mm-hmm. although he never he 's never given up the notion that um, there can be some kind of uh, uh, I, I think he hasn 't uh, some kind of a, a new paradigm for psychology that would incorporate any possible methodology that you could uh, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I think Georgie's a good example of someone who tried to take phenomenological ideas and mold them in such a way that they created a research tradition that is a way of articulating problems and uh, perspectives so that you're still somewhat rigorous in your articulation of them uh, without having to uh, reduce every problem to a question of collecting data, data in the form of numbers. Um, and I remember Maslow wrote a paper somewhere in the late 1960s where he 
was very negative about the number of people who wanted to work with him, graduate students who had written and applied, and people who wanted to do postdocs with him working on self-actualization. And he said, you know, these people come and they just think, sit around and chat and read some books, and that's working on self-actualization, and he would rather have a more rigorous program of research where you actually look at how this works and uh, try to develop a more serious science of self-actualization. So he, in a sense, tried to make this a, a more rigorous program, but I think largely failed as a, as a consequence. How much, uh, how much do you think um, part of that failure was, in a sense, his untimely death? Well, yes, it could have been. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, we don't know what he would have yeah, done course, eventually. But, yeah. uh, but it, is, yeah. it does come at a point in which... When, when did Maslow die? In the late 60s, just after, or, 70... Uh, early 70s. Yeah, maybe early yeah. 71 or 70. But it, it's around that time right. then in which we seem to take a turn away from maybe in a sense the very positive kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of articulation of humanism during the 50s and into the 60s is it, a little sunnier, I think. Yeah. And so so I, hear, I, I hear a little bit of tension then between the leadership, the early leadership of the movement and the broader, more popular movement that begins to get away from them a little bit. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit more in detail about those leaders. Their, their names have come up. Um, Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, Gordon Allport. I, Who wants Maslow? I, I, well, I, 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 I want to say uh, one thing about Maslow, uh, and, and this has to do with the sort of North American origins of some of these ideas. Uh, a little known fact about Maslow is that he spent uh, the summer of 1938 uh, at the behest of Ruth Benedict at the uh, Siksika Nation in Gleeson, Alberta. He mm -hmm. was sent out to collect data uh, for Ruth Benedict, and uh, he arrived there and uh, discovered that what, what he thought was going to be uh, he, he was looking at security uh, among children, feelings of secure uh, infancy and uh, development and so on. Uh, and to his surprise, discovered that the children of the Siksika nation were, in fact, uh, very secure individuals, uh, despite uh, what was a declining population at that time. Uh, it isn't anymore now. There's about 6,000 members of that particular group. but. At that point, there were only 500, and uh, he was surprised by this, and he tried to understand what it was about the uh, Blackfoot uh, in southern Alberta that was so unusual, and uh, the apocryphal story, at least, is that uh, he uh, discovered that uh, a high degree of independence in childhood along with a very warm and supportive uh, family relations, extended family relations, created these secure individuals and, and led him to rethink his notion of uh, uh, human development and uh, actualization. Um, and so presumably some of this worked into his thesis of self-actualization. So here we have a humanistic, so to speak, conception that draws from something entirely different than right. European philosophy. Instead, mm -hmm. it comes from essentially having lived among uh, one of the First Nations in Canada. Right. And what about Carl Rogers? Where does he come from? How does he come to this? Well, I'll, I'll pick up on that. He, um, again, he was a, uh, a psychotherapist who was studying psychotherapy uh, empirically, as I mentioned earlier. And he had to face an uphill battle. I heard about one story. He was at some meeting, and one of the Menningers was there and refused to look at him because he was not a medical doctor, and so hmm. he had no business talking about or doing psychotherapy. 
and, and at the time, I believe he had the title of professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota or well, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and it was resented deeply by the medical profession. So this is the battle between the medical psychiatrist and the newly yeah. aspiring clinical psychologist yeah. doing therapy. Yeah, yeah. but and, but in addition to that, I mean, he was uh, Carl was uh, president of the APA in the late '40s, I believe. So he had really made a place for himself in, in American psychology. Uh, at some point, I don't know the dates exactly. He renames non-directive therapy as client-centered therapy. And then later on, even, he renames it person-centered therapy. So the whole, the whole notion of um, paying attention to the person, respect for the individual and for the person discovering the meaning of their life, that was very much a part of his work. One of the other fascinating things that he got involved in, and I'm not exactly sure when or where, but he got involved in, uh, in countergroups. Mm-hmm. And by the, the mid-70s or early 70s, he was, he, was, um, he, was, he was developing a form of, of group therapy, which real, no, maybe it had to be in the 60s. No, it was. It, it was, was in the, the early 60s. 60s. It, it was, was in the 60s. 60s yeah. yeah. For it, people who weren't in the early 60s, remind us what encounter groups <laughs> are. <laughs> encounter yeah. groups. Very interesting. Encounter groups, for those... It, when I was in high school, I will date myself, we had, one of the books we had to read was a book by a man named White called The Organization Man. And this was a, a warning and also kind of like a forecast. This is what your life is going to be. You're going to be some number in some massive bureaucracy, whether it's the government or business or something. And so the, the, there was uh, an enormous concern that life was becoming depersonalized. And then also concerns about conformity, the uh, outer directedness, all of those things were current at this time. So the encounter group, in the encounter group, you shed all of those um, false um, roles, personas that you carry around with you in everyday life. And the idea was that you would be authentically yourself in a safe environment. There would be no leader, there would be a facilitator who would, would guide and, and protect people in, 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 uh, in, in being able to encounter uh, other people. And the whole, the term encounter was something is kind of sacred, you know, it comes from, um, I guess, from the existentialist in Europe, the whole notion of encounter, um, where you really meet somebody as, uh, as another human being, as a thou, rather than in the, in the context of, of a role. And so Rogers was, uh, de- was developing that. Encounter groups would be, would be organized for a set period of time. Typically, I think they had no agenda mm-hmm. because you wouldn't want to have anybody saying this is where it was supposed to go. And it was a, it was a remarkable cultural phenomenon in, 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 in North America. I don't know where else. But it, it, it drew on the um, old notions of revivals, and it developed like, reli- like, like religious, religious revival, revivals, where revival people would come yeah. and just be overpowered by the spirit and so on. And it developed some very odd forms. Like I think there was a cover of Psychology Today in the late 1960s that talked about marathon, meaning like a whole weekend, marathon nude encounters. Because if you're going to strip off your roles, you might as well take your clothes off as well. Right. I, I, I want to get. I want to come back to this in a minute. But, but before we do it, I want to talk a little bit about Allport. Can we do? I, and I, I think we can't. Let, let's start off with. Let's begin back with Bob was saying is that that presidential address. 
he actually he was a lot more focused in that address. He spoke specifically about Ernst Jentsch, the Nazi head of uh, of psychology in the Nazi Germany, and his use of a, a, a variety of psychological mechanisms uh, among among uh, chickens in a chicken yard as a way of proving that there was natural superiority of one group over another. And he warned, and it was amazing, he had all of these behavioral psychologists sitting in front of him, and he was warning that if psychology goes down the road of simply looking at this kind of research, that's the, what we're going to wind up. So, so we have a direct uh, yeah. response, yeah. reaction to Nazism. Let's not also forget that he was the person APA appointed as the, uh, as the chair of the emergency committee to deal with the resettlement of European psychologists who were being thrown out of their jobs in, in, in Nazi-controlled areas during the Anschluss and then uh, at, uh, during the war. And he had kept up an enormous correspondence with people in Germany and, else, and in Austria and elsewhere. And he had a very decent sense of what was going on there. And he, there was a revulsion he had against a type of psychology that didn't deal with the person a bit more uh, capaciously. Yeah, yeah. And he always maintained that... Um, that the lawfulness of, of, uh, of an individual is not necessarily the lawfulness of an entire population, but there was a, non- a lawfulness to the individual life. And the, one of the thrusts of his ideographic uh, advocacy to look at the individual, quite individual, was not to be non-scientific, but to find out what the lawfulness was of that individual in terms of their traits in terms of the, the elements within their personality, after all, he wrote one of the first two textbooks in personality back in the 30s, uh, and, and to understand an individual as having, in a sense, his, his or her own kind of lawfulness. Well, this brings up a question that somebody asked me the other day, which is how can Gordon Allport be the person who was responsible for trait personality theory, which seems to divide people up into little bits, and then later on be the father of humanism, which is all about dealing with people holistically, not dividing up into individual reactions. And so How do those two go together? Is it a, is it a migration of his own thought? Or Actually, is there a- I, I, I would maintain that at some basic level he failed. And, and, and the failure was um, that he, he, he attracted a large number of very intelligent individuals. I mean, the primary example, I think, being Jerry Bruner. Attracted a whole number of very attractive individuals, but then they all started wor- working in all sorts of areas. And I think as you go through the, uh, through the, the, the 50s and into the beginning of the 60s, his influence in psychology you know, has really drifted down. But I also think uh, at the end of his life, if you read his last papers, and it's been a few years since I've looked at them, but he had serious doubts about the quantification of uh, various aspects of this whole personality enterprise, and he aired those doubts. In fact, uh, he was the one who imported and is responsible for the popularity of the term that originates in philosophy, uh, a 1930s philosophy, and, and the exact name of the person has escaped me now. But the term that he popularized in psychology, uh, which you will all recognize, is methodolatry. Mm-hmm. It was Alport who brought that back uh, as a way of describing the way we have made a fetish out of methods uh, at the expense of theory. 
we worship the idol of method rather than. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed, the first half of the uh, of the presidential address that Bob talked about in '39 was actually an analysis of how research had changed over the previous uh, 50 years. And one of the things he pointed out is that in terms of published research at the beginning of the 20th century and then in the 1930s was it went from about 50% focus upon human beings down to about 15% and the rest of it was filled with that, with rat research, mm-hmm. you know, rats and pigeons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And he talked about operationalism as the, yeah. the new rocket that was taking off in the field. Right. Bob touched on uh, the next issue uh, earlier. Uh, encounter groups started off as a serious enterprise but became fringier and perhaps even goofier as time went on. There was EST and there was primal screen therapy and there was the nude therapy that you talked about. And, and these be- became embarrassments to uh, uh, the core of the discipline perhaps. Can we, uh, what, what's happening there? What do you think is, has happened to humanism that you know, it has this kind of auspicious start and then it, it begins to diffuse into all these different movements? Well, I think part of it is, is that um, it became taken up with the... Um, the whole counterculture of the 1960s. And um, it quickly became something that was not the, uh, simply uh, the purview of professionals. It was something that was seen as uh, synonymous with personal liberation, with personal freedom. And so it got caught up with the uh, sexual revolution, with drugs, probably with Woodstock. <laughs> you know, all of those things are... Are, are happening around the same time, and I think uh, in the minds of a lot of people at you know who were alive at that time, especially the young. I mean, the, these these were all of a, the same cloth. They're all woven of the same cloth. Um, I remember the first time I discovered an, an encounter group. I was a senior in college, and someone told me there's going to be an encounter group. I had no idea what that meant, but I knew I wanted to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and how did it go? It was very tame. But it was, you know, it was done, uh, I was at a, a Manhattan college, a Catholic college, and, and these are people talking about, they, 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 they actually talked uh, about sex and, uh, in, in, a, in a positive way. I mean, that was, so that in itself was made it. It was unusual. It was unusual. It, for, the, for the time and the place, it was pretty revolutionary. Yeah. I think one of the things we haven't mentioned before is, uh, although you touch upon it with the notion of primal therapy, Yanko's you know, mm-hmm. uh, scream and you can release is the notion that a whole person not just expresses thinking but expresses feeling mm-hmm. and, and that uh, and that the body and feelings and thoughts all had to be uh, to be brought to the fore and so there was a there was a real valuation of, of people simply talking about how angry they were or how uh, uh, you know how frustrated they were. Um, it's interesting. I think those the, the feelings that I remember being expressed in those days tended to be more negative than positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also may be part of the notion. This is coming. You know, we, if the era begins with, in some ways, the results of the Second World War. Or after that, you have to start talking about the effects of the uh, of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. at least as it affects the United States, and then the question of what was going on in, in May of 1968 in Europe. You know, which obvi- uh, for, for, for people in Europe was, as far as I can read the history, was the pivotal experience 
for an awful lot of academics. This was well. the Europe the, was on the verge of civil war, and students were at the, the yeah, forefront of exactly. the revolt. And, yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and the notion that by the time we get to the late 60s, uh, let's just say the United States, we had been brought into this quagmire in Vietnam by the experts, mm-hmm. by the very, very best, the best and the brightest, as I guess they called the Kennedy and the early part of the Johnson administration. And so the distrust of those who had academic degrees and those who had academic standing, I think, began to permeate an awful lot of college culture in which people would say, wait a minute, if, if the dean of Harvard or the dean of this school, you know, was implicated in all sorts of stupid uh, policies uh, in terms of defense department, why should I pay any attention to you as an expert about this particular issue? And I think it really seeped all through the American colleges and university system. Right. This, so, sorry, go ahead. No, there's another one, just a name just uh, at the same time. Is uh, I, I think he was a student of Allport, if I'm not mistaken, Timothy Leary. Timothy mm-hmm. Leary, yeah. Uh, starts as a Harvard University psychology professor, but becomes the prophet of LSD. LSD, which was, you know, gave legitimation to a lot of countercultural material in psychological terms, because here you had a, a psychologist who was affirming this. So, if humanism is, you know, about letting it all hang out and anything goes, it, it's. It, I find it interesting that. Um, one of the places where humanism continues to thrive is in some of the denominational schools, in Catholic schools. Both you, Vinny, and you, Bob, are, at, are, are in Catholic schools. Why do you think that is? What is it about humanism that connects up with the mission of a religious school, given that it has all this other sort of crazy stuff that you would think not, would not be you know, well-connected with a religious school? I, I think we need to take uh, both an historical view but also a contemporary view. I, I don't think you would su- – I, w- I would not suggest that um, contemporary Catholic colleges and universities are particularly sympathetic to, to humanism. No. I think, however, that um, there was a conjunction in the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s precisely because at the same time – that American psychology was doing that encounter, you also had, at least in the Catholic schools, a whole group of people in philosophy and theology who went over to Europe to study and then came back. You know, they did their degrees in Europe, and there was still this, there was a strong sense that if you really wanted to become an intellectual and you really wanted to know where the, the cutting front was in these areas, the best place to go was go to Europe, go to the German universities, study mm-hmm. there. And so these folks brought back, I, I think, an openness uh, to continental ways of thinking that had been pretty much absent you know, uh, before, and they tried to under, undertake programs not just, um, certainly not in psychology, that wouldn't have been the f- primary focus, it would have been in areas like, uh, like theology, literature study, and we haven't even talked about hermeneutics and, and that whole notion, and then its effects upon, you know, biblical studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul Ricoeur, of course, is, uh, you know, is a central figure there, um, which, which and you're asking, why is it that it was positive? Because I think they saw that there was, uh, there was an opening. There was an opening towards some depth 
there was an opening towards you know the notion of the horizon, and of course it's all very much tied up with Heidegger. I mean, Heidegger is one of the seminal figures for Catholic theology mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Um, so it's an uneasy alliance. Mm -hmm. At the same time, remember too is that Catholic schools, and Bob will probably know much more about this. Catholic schools were not particularly open to psychoanalytic forms of thinking, and so they had never been particularly uh, caught up. With, with that particular tradition. Be, because so psychoanalytic thinking was deterministic and, yeah, was and part of the Christian... Yeah, and it was considered to be atheistic right. and thus inevitably flawed. So the Christian thus, emphasis on free will and the humanistic emphasis yeah, on free yeah. will... And, and, and we always remember, is among, among at least, they may have been fringe elements in terms of the existentialist movement, but there was always a Christian existentialist right. movement in Europe. You know, even even uh, Kierkegaard at some level is a Christian existentialist, and then you move to someone uh, uh, someone like a Gabriel Marcel, uh, who was actually very close personally, I believe, in terms of relationship with Martin Buber yeah. as as a Jewish existentialist. So um, we're uh, we're beginning to run out of time here, um, but I want to hear what Bob has to say. Yeah, I mean, when the uh, American Catholic Psychological Association was started in the late '40s, they had a discussion at their meetings um, whether to have a discussion, uh, present a, um, a symposium on psychoanalysis, and they decided to postpone that because it was controversial. They said even among ourselves, and as an alternative, they they decided to talk about. Carl Rogers and client-centered therapy, because it was seen as more compatible with, uh, you know, um, Christian notions of, of the human person. And when uh, at my own university, which is it is associated with, with humanism to some extent, but you know there are humanisms and humanisms, and uh, so those that were more philosophical tied at least to some extent to continental thinking, uh, especially as it came through the Duquesne school you know, in the work of Adrian von Kahn and others. Um, it had a way of challenging uh, scientific orthodoxy and psychology, um, but in, in, um, in terms that were uh, based on uh, an understanding of, of what, it, what a human person is and how they ought to be studied and understood. Yeah. So the last thing I'd like to talk about is where humanism is today. Um, it's, it doesn't seem to be as influential as it once was, but there are still organizations dedicated to it and some, some journals dedicated to it. Why don't we start with you, Hank? What do you think humanism's present is? Uh, I think as a label, it no longer describes what it did maybe 40 years ago. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's become uh, a way of identifying yourself as, as if, if you are a member of that particular orientation of saying I'm not an experimentalist or I'm interested in the broader features of human psychological being and that immediately opens up a series of philosophical questions that we normally don't discuss in psychology. In other words, what humanism uh, is useful for if, if, it is, if it still has a, a use as a label is it says I'm interested in broader questions, bigger questions, philosophical questions or philosophical anthropological questions. In other words, what is the nature of human being and how is that human being different from other kinds of beings on the planet uh, and, and how can we characterize that human being in a way that isn't just uh, in terms of uh, na natural life. In, in other words, in terms of, say, an evolutionary story that we tell or a biological story that we tell but we say something about what it is to be human in a way that's not characterized by those 
special sciences or necessarily by history either. Yeah, many. Uh, I think it's, I would suspect it's pretty much completely divorced from the discipline of psychology as most of us would, uh, would uh, recognize it. And what, what I mean by that is um, all of its new age kind of uh, variations, uh, a whole number of things that involve uh, what seem to be fairly esoteric, utterly un, uh, unsubstantiated, at least uh, dataless types of, uh, of approaches to understanding people, which uh, uh, sometimes seem to have their appeal because they, uh, they claim to be related to very esoteric practices of, 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 of other cultures or so, but which I don't recognize, at least in most American, certainly not in American psychological circles. I mean, it's simply not there anymore. Right. So I'll give the last word to you, Bob. Well, I think uh, humanistic psychology's major contribution has been the way it's been diffused into the broader culture. It's tied up with identity politics. Uh, it probably paid a ro- played a role in developing feminism and in ecological concerns. And, and the, um, it's, you know, it's institutionalized the notion that um, people, no matter what their makeup or their characteristics, uh, have, a, have a right to, to their identity. So the whole notion, especially uh, identity politics, I would, I would end with that. That's been its, it's probably greatest contribution. Right. Well, thank you all very much. I hope you all enjoyed the first episode of Discussions in the History of Psychology, and um, we hope to do this uh, once a month or so in the future. Um, I don't have a set of definite uh, topics for future episodes, but I'm thinking about doing something on uh, women in early psychology, the participation of women in early psychology, um, and, and uh, possibly some other things. If you'd like to uh, email me to uh, suggest some things or just to talk about the episodes more generally, you can email me at the um, email address for the previous podcast series. That's twithop, T W I T H O P, at yorku, Y O R K U dot C A. That's all for now. Thank you very much for listening.